1: Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 139. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. The chill of winter is in the air. The Atlanta Braves are the World Series champs. Republican Glenn Youngin beat Democrat Terry McAuliffe in the election for Virginia governor, the most watched race in America. It's been 11 months since domestic terrorists tried to overthrow our government. And about 5 million children have tested positive for COVID since spring of 2020. And now, now is still, Very much a time to stay vigilant. Today's a great day for American parents and American families and American children. We've taken a giant step forward to further accelerate our path out of this pandemic. After months of rigorous and independent scientific review, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, authorized, and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, recommended a COVID-19 vaccine for children ages 5 through 11. There it is. As early as next week, kids nationwide will finally be able to get the vaccine. About 5 million kids have tested positive for COVID since 2020. And by this Christmas, 28 million more Americans will have the opportunity to be vaccinated. It's good news. It's really good news. After almost two years of worrying, Parents will finally have the option to protect their kids, at least the ones that are five and over. And that includes me. My six year old son can finally get the vaccine. My two year old is going to have to wait. But our country and my family is one step closer to the end of this long national nightmare that's been the pandemic. And as winter, and the holidays approach, this is welcome news. But for my family, it's news that I really wish had come earlier. About 10 days earlier. Because the day after I recorded the last episode of this show last week, I got a phone call from my wife letting me know that I needed to pick up both my kids from school immediately. They go to the same school in preschool and first grade. And right after getting everyone's Winnie the Pooh themed costumes lined up for the Halloween parade at school and the first real Halloween in two years, I was rushing to pick up both my boys at school. After a COVID exposure with a classmate, my first grader's entire class was sent home for 10 days of virtual school. His nursery school brother had to go home, too, until he got a clear test because he's a sibling. They were and are thankfully feeling fine. And they were already getting tested every week at school. But because of the protocols for our school and the county, they missed the school-wide Halloween parade on Friday. And everything was turned upside down again. Ten more days of virtual learning. It's like 2020 all over again. Yeah, all things considered, we're very, very lucky. But after this Halloween week, I just want to recognize all the COVID deniers, the anti vaxxers, the anti maskers, Trump, his enablers, and everyone who's made this pandemic longer and harder than it ever had to be. So, on behalf of our kids, especially. Yeah, that's my message to all of you that made this damn pandemic longer and harder than it ever had to be. And yes, hello, darkness, my old friend. This week, I'm back in virtual school with my first grader. At six years old, he spent almost half of his school life online. But like every other situation, we're making the most of it. His school was prepared. Everyone rallied. We got him quickly tested and we pulled off an awesome Halloween and we're actually enjoying aspects of virtual school. Yeah, it's a messed up juggling act, but it also gives me a chance to see all his new teachers this year in action from gym to math to music. And I get more time with him at home and I'll always cherish that part of the pandemic. Even as the plumber left my house tonight after removing another matchbox from an overflowing toilet and leaving me a few hundred dollar bill. Yeah, that happened too. But we make the most of it. We improvise, we adapt, we overcome, and we keep our eyes on the future. And despite the challenges, we find a way to make it happen. Like the special operations community in our military which reported this week that 98% of them are vaccinated. 98% of special operators like the Navy SEALs and Green Berets, but also the administrative people and other troops that make up the joint force of roughly 70,000 people. 98% of them have gotten the shot. And as of Wednesday, 97% of the entire active duty military has had at least one of the two-dose vaccine regimen. And 87% is fully vaccinated. And that's good stuff. The military's making stuff happen. Now, it should have happened earlier, but it's good progress in a really short time since the mandate hit. And if it's good enough for our special operations troops, isn't it good enough for you? And I'm looking especially at all the cops Firefighters and first responders who are refusing to take the vaccine. Our special operations community makes things happen. Unlike the Democrats. Despite the announcement of the vaccine for kids, we'll see how that rollout goes. Afghanistan is still a mess. There have been no results whatsoever on key promises from the Democrats, like voting rights protections and an infrastructure bill. And the feeble Democrats have somehow lost the narrative again, and they're allowing Trump and Fox to sway voters in places like Virginia and New Jersey. They're eating their own per usual. And Biden looks like he's about to die just about every day. And Joe Manchin has now become the most powerful politician in America. Isn't that just a perfect reflection of our time? Joe Manchin is calling the shots for America. One of the least impressive members of Congress I've ever met, representing one of the smallest state populations in America, is now driving the conversation in America. Joe Manchin. That's the Democrats right now. And of course, the Republicans are much worse. But like many independents, I expected better from Biden. Probably not from the Democrats, but from Biden personally. But he's slowing down. He's losing steam. And he's looking more and more like a one-term president by the day. Somewhere deep in Mar-a-Lago, former President Mayhem is licking his chops. Waiting, planning, raising money. That nasty, ugly, selfish smile getting bigger and bigger by the day as Biden continues to get tied up by Mansion and by Cinema and by the Squad and by the English language and by just about everything else. It's not a good time for Joe Biden, folks. And it's not a good time for America. The low turnout election this week is just the latest example of the deep trouble we're in. The process, the results, the disgust. This election day is just the latest reminder of how badly the two major parties are failing the American people. In Virginia, Glenn Youngin became the first Republican to win statewide office there in a decade. He's a guy who opposed mask and vaccine mandates. He opposes abortion rights, and he fired up a nasty culture war, racism, and all the dark forces of Trumpism to deliver a convincing win over Terry McAuliffe. Terry McAuliffe, yet another Clinton insider, an establishment dude that the Democrats ridiculously thought could win in a traditionally red state. Because the Democrats continue to fail to understand. Just how deep hatred for anything Clinton runs in this country with just about everyone who's not a Clinton-era Democrat. They continue to run shitty candidates that come from the establishment that have no real ability to fight, represent populism, or even connect with humans on the most basic level. For the Democrats, same old game plan, same old result. Biden carried Virginia by 10 points last year. Not anymore. Biden is no longer a popular president. And independent voters in particular have, for now, deserted his party. It's true. That's a line from the must-read piece in The Atlantic this week titled, If Democrats Can Lose Virginia, They Can Lose Almost Anywhere. It's by Elaine Godfrey and Russell Berman. And it's a bullseye. Because things are so bad in Demsville that they almost lost New Jersey. Biden won New Jersey last year by 15 points. This year, Murphy almost lost to Jack Cittirelli, who ran on taxes and opposition to masks and vaccine mandates. Independents are breaking against Democrats. In Virginia, in 2020, 38% of independents voted Republican. In 2021, 54%. So, independents went from 38% supporting Republicans just one year ago to 54% supporting them now. That's what it looks like when Trump is not on the ticket. And that's what it could look like next year in the midterms. This swing from independence underscores the growing importance and number of independents. And it reflects the sentiment I see among independents nationally. And it should truly terrify Democrats. Yeah, Democrats won lots of races, but it was a loss for them nationally and for America. In New York City's high-profile race for mayor, Democrat and former New York City cop Eric Adams beat ridiculous media personality and red beret wearer Curtis Slewa 66% to 29%. That race was over after the Democratic primary in June. It didn't even matter. So lots of Dems just stayed home. But many right-wing Republicans came out, motivated by racism and by opposition to science and vaccines and masks. They turned out. But even more Americans didn't even vote. Overall, more Americans just stayed home and voted none of the above with their feet. This election day is just the latest painful reminder of how badly the two major parties are failing the American people. George Washington said it in his farewell address and warning in September of 1796. However political parties may now and then answer popular ends, they are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, And unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. That's my George Washington voice. But he warned us about the parties. America deserves better than just two parties and deserves so much better than these two parties. It's why 40% of Americans, and growing, are independent and unaffiliated. The role of independent Americans is rising in power by the day. And the popularity of being independent is growing by the day, too. Last month, there were reports that Joe Manchin was considering leaving the Democratic Party to call himself an independent. Manchin, as an independent, please know, Please, no. We independents don't want Manchin at all. He'd be the worst thing for independents since Howard Schultz. And you know who else is independent now? Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang has found a new bandwagon to jump on. After missing a chance to run as an independent when he ran for mayor of New York City, he's found a new thing, which he seems to do, like, every few months. Yang is now calling himself an independent, And has created what he's calling the forward party. Not left, not right, forward. Maybe sounds good. But it's not. It's opportunism. Yang has no true north. He's talented and he's appealing. And probably well-intentioned. But he's not built to last. He's bouncing all around. Popcorn ideas and candy highs. Not real vision. Yang's tasty like a nice short sugar high, but he won't sustain you for the fight. The forward party is not an independent party. It's a Yang party. His analysis is correct, but like so many others before him, his solution is not. Yeah, people want alternatives. Yeah, more and more people are independent, but no, Andrew Yang is not our king. He's just the latest Republican or Democrat to change their jersey. We don't want leaders and organizations created by opportunistic turncoats or major castoffs. We want leaders coming up from the farm leagues who have integrity. We want leaders who have always been independent and principled, not self-proclaimed leaders who are riding the popularity of independence to push themselves or not very independent platforms like Yang's forward party. Now, here's what I'm talking about. Yang introduced this forward party with six core principles. That's what he called them. The core principles of the forward party, which is supposed to be an independent party. Number one, grace and tolerance. Sure. That sounds great. Why not? Sure. Grace, tolerance. Great. Sure. Number two, ranked choice voting and nonpartisan or open primaries. Okay. Great. Yeah, sure. Number three. Fact-based governance Um, okay Number four Human-centered capitalism Huh? What the hell is that? Okay, now Yang's lost me Five Effective and modern government Hmm What the hell does that mean? You're losing me even more And six Universal basic income Come on now. That's something lots of folks like, but not lots of independents. That's Yang being Yang, adding shit that has nothing to do with what we're here for. That's the bait and switch. That's the forward party. No. Done. Bye. Independents don't want Yang's forward party, and they don't want those core values. They want different core values, like not being insane, or try maybe a focus on education. Infrastructure, national security. Try not being partisan. Try being legitimately patriotic. Try being really independent. That's what independents want. It ain't Joe Manchin. It ain't Andrew Yang. And it ain't anything we've seen so far. So, one year from the midterms and three years from the next most consequential presidential election of our lifetime, we independents have very little to hang our hats on. But that doesn't mean we're not watching. It doesn't mean we're not hungry for real leadership. It doesn't mean we're not powerful. Quite the opposite. Our power is in our independence. Our power is in our diversity. Our power is in our dissipation. The most powerful party in America is still no party at all. Stop trying to get us to join you and start listening to what we say, what we want, and where we are. We're not coming to you. You need to come to us. And those that do will win the day. They'll change history. And they'll maybe even save the future of this great country. Because we independents will stay vigilant. From speaking truth to power, to fighting hate, to defending the free press, to supporting veterans, to fighting extremism here at home. We will stay vigilant. And that includes never forgetting what happened on January 6th and never stopping fighting for truth and for accountability. Because 11 months ago, a group of traitors, fools, and domestic terrorists tried to capture and kill the Speaker of the House. The vice president of the United States, they tried to sack our Capitol building. They threw shit on the walls. They rejected the results of a free and fair election. And they tried to overthrow our government. And our guest today has been staying vigilant in covering it more than any other journalist in America. He's the best kind of independent American. One who seeks the truth, fights for justice, and demands that attention be paid. Outstanding NBC investigative reporter and one-man, January 6th, truth-telling machine, Scott McFarlane. (music) Investigative reporter Scott McFarlane is the guy with the most important Twitter feed and news reporting on what's happening to hold people accountable after January 6th. He's an investigative reporter with the News 4 i-team at NBC's Channel 4 in Washington, D.C. Scott's been around a long time. He's interviewed U.S. presidents, dozens of senators, governors, and a Supreme Court justice, and he's questioned press secretaries in the White House briefing room. His work has made change. It's led to the creation of five state laws, It's triggered federal prosecutions, and it's been referenced in more than a dozen formal congressional hearings and floor speeches. He's gotten awards for his work on behalf of children's safety. He won the Anna Quinlan Award for Excellence in Journalism from the Child Welfare League of America. And his series of investigations on public school security got him several honors from the AP and a series of Emmy and Edward R. Murrow awards. His investigative reporting on thoroughbred horse racing deaths in West Virginia triggered a series of new safety state regulations for the sport and earned an award from the Humane Society. His series of investigations on the U.S. State Department was honored by the National Press Club. And his investigations into the Department of Veterans Affairs inspired a congressional review by the U.S. House Oversight Committee. Scott's a grinder. He's a guy who works his ass off to find the stories we need to know. He began his career as a reporter for CBS TV affiliates in Detroit, Cleveland, Grand Rapids, and Syracuse. He worked as a congressional staffer once in the U.S. House of Representatives. He's paid his dues, and he knows his shit. And every day now, he's reporting on all the pending January 6th insurrection cases. He's the guy staying vigilant. For all of us. And he's here now to tell us what the hell is really happening. How many of the attackers from January 6th have been arrested? How many are still at large? What's the status of the person who tried to plant pipe bombs at the Republican and Democratic Party headquarters on January 6th? How many of these people are in jail right now? Why are they being allowed to go to vacations in Mexico and Steelers football games? How high is the Department of Justice investigation going? When will we finally see an oath keeper tried? What's coming next? Scott's going to break it all down. He's the premier reporter covering with tremendous focus the single most important story in America. And he's a true independent American. It's another powerful, timely, urgent conversation that keeps it real. One to empower you to stay vigilant. Because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. Especially 11 months after it was almost taken from all of us. Independent Americans is continuing to bring you important, inspiring, and iconic Americans. Leaders who are shaping what America's been, what it is now, and what it will be in the future. And we're always bringing you the Righteous Media Five Eyes. Independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And this is an episode with impact. It's your reminder that some of the domestic terrorists that attacked the Capitol on January 6th are still at large. Eleven months later, the FBI is out there looking for them. And they need your help. Help the FBI get them. Help America defend itself. Help protect our future. Listen to this conversation Welcome to a deep dive inside The most devastating attack on America Since 9-11 Welcome to a look into the story Everyone should be covering But very few are Welcome to January 6th 11 months later Welcome to Independent Americans Episode 139 Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world, Uh, there is a lot going on in America. We've gotten through Halloween. We've gotten through another election. We've gotten through the World Series, but there's the story brewing and brimming. Uh, beneath the surface for going on 11 months now that we've got to go deeper on and we've got the perfect guest to do it. I'm very happy he could make time to join us. The great and powerful Scott McFarlane joins us here on Independent Americans. Welcome, Scott. Nice to be here, Paul. I'm a big fan of your work um, and I don't know if we've actually ever met in person or not on the Hill, but I've been watching all that you do and I want to get into all the latest around the trials, uh, around th- what I think is maybe the biggest story of the year, which is the insurrection and everything that comes after it. But let me let me ask you, you've been deep in it. You've been doing some incredibly, I think, innovative journalism. Let's start with a question I ask of, of all my guests, Scott. Where are you and how are you?
0: <laughs> I'm fine. You've caught me on the one day I'm not in Washington, D.C. in 2021. Uh, make a road trip up to upstate New York to see some family. I thought it was going to be a quiet week. There hasn't been a quiet week (laughs) since January 6th. But that notwithstanding, uh, we're going to hit the first anniversary of the Capitol insurrection before we see the first trial. And it's starting to sink in with people that this is a long, long process. It's going to be measured in months, in years, and not days and weeks. So really, there is no day off for those covering January 6th and its aftermath, what I believe to be a continuous story that will transcend this year and will go on for many years to come.
1: I want to go deeper into that. Let's talk. How is it for you, Scott? You've been covering this during the pandemic. You know, there are security concerns. Uh, You know, I see you from from the Capitol, from inside. But how has this been for you and the people around you doing this over the last year?
0: Well, it's not that popular on the home front because it involves weekend work because mean, there's so many cases, Paul. The court filings keep coming in on Saturday, on Sunday on Mother's Day, on on holidays. so And we we got to keep up with it. So it's been a little bit of a a hamster on a wheel. And there are 650 plus cases so far. So there's a lot to get your hands around. And and anybody tracking this closely will tell you that that 650 is not the ceiling. We're somewhere toward the ceiling, but there are dozens, if not hundreds more cases to
1: so let that, that that's where I want to start if I can. Okay, so we're coming up on the anniversary, right? You know, it's 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 right around uh you know, November 6th as we record this. Um it's been 11 months basically. Let's start with 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 the denominator. Um how many br- break it down for people who maybe aren't following your Twitter feed which is a must, but how many people have been arrested? Uh you know, how many people are in the trial system? How how can you describe the scope of this and do we know how many are still at large do we know how many so, they're hunting right now and and have not been captured by the fbi yet
0: that's a trickier question than you think because first the numbers are fluid because there are arrests being made every week and the fbi and the justice department don't hand you over a list and say here's who we have this week here's what we've got going they're, they're not announcing them they're not putting them in press releases they're not giving you a scorecard and as you all have noticed they're not giving regular updates or press briefings in fact This zero press briefings since the Capitol insurrection from the Justice Department. So a lot of this is a puzzle we have to piece together. And what we've pieced together so far is you have about 650 federal defendants in the U.S. Capitol insurrection. We know from testimony from the U.S. Capitol Police Chief, there were at least 800 people illegally in the Capitol that day. And we know some number of people we've seen charged never got inside the Capitol. They committed crimes, according to the prosecutors, outside the Capitol. You know, chemical spraying police, punching police. Um, so the ceiling could go to a thousand, could go above a thousand. And we're at 650 now. And we see the court filings, Paul, how prosecutors are finding or connecting some of these defendants to the crimes. It's through the omnipresent social media images and videos that exist. I mean, and the surveillance videos that exist. I mean, there's colorful imagery of these defendants inside the Capitol. So we know they're using those surveillance cameras to connect people to the crime. And there were, if, if there were 800 people illegally inside the Capitol, logic tells you there may be hundreds more to come.
1: Okay. So if that's, if that's our starting point, Uh, And I want to go deeper on why they're not doing press briefings, you know, the precedent around that. But but maybe uh, before we go deeper into the folks that have been arrested that are in that process, I I try to track and and share the word on how many people the FBI is hunting down. It's 11 months later. I go back. I'm teaching a class on 9-11 at Amherst College this semester. Right. I'm teaching my students what it was like after 9-11. The idea that there seems to be so little urgency or just that it's taking so long? I think back to the Boston Marathon bombing. I think about other what I would call terrorist attacks. And I think this is a domestic terrorist attack. What is going on with how many people are at large right now who are walking the streets to include? It looks like the person who set a pipe bomb outside of the DNC and RNC hasn't been captured yet. Can you talk about who we know is at large and the FBI is trying to hunt down right now?
0: You started with the right one, the person who left pipe bombs, active, destructive pipe bombs outside the Democratic and Republican Party headquarters. There's no arrest. As far as we can tell, there's no suspect. The FBI continues to solicit tips. That's really, to me, the top line who's still out there. Um, There are others clearly others who were inside the Capitol that day. There are others who are unlawfully inside specific members' offices, who assaulted police, who damaged historic property that have yet to be arrested. Um, That being said, there is some progress. I mean, the federal system tends to move at a slower pace, and in 10 months, there have already been 650 arrests. You do the math, they're averaging X number of arrests a day, X number of arrests a week. We know the FBI is doing surveillance, undercover surveillance around suspects, communities, around their homes or workplaces. We know this because the FBI has used the surveillance imagery and testimony in charging documents in some of the currently charged cases. So we know that nearly every, every FBI field office is now part of this investigation because people came from all across the country to be part of the capital insurrection. We know defendants are from nearly every state, but so this is a nationwide investigation, not a regional one. That's going to take more time. As far as the court cases, though, Paul, please that's where the timetable can get more tricky. I mentioned earlier, we won't have a trial before the first anniversary. We may not have trials even in early 2022 at this point. And that's partly because of COVID, limiting the functions of the courthouse. And there's still a back, a pandemic-era cases to get through before they get to the January 6 cases. What's more, they have 650 cases all going through one courthouse, the Washington, D.C. federal courthouse just down the road from Capitol Hill. There's only so many judges, only so many prosecutors, only so many federal defenders, and only so much time on the calendar. And then there's the big issue. This is the most pressing issue as we speak right now. There's an unprecedented mountain of evidence that has to be processed by prosecutors, prepared by law for defense attorneys, you know, synthesized, comprehended and readied for trial. And they're just not getting there. They just can't get to the end of that road because more evidence keeps coming in every day. And there's all that video, Paul, all those social media posts. There's there's 10,000 plus hours of U.S. capital surveillance video that could be relevant. If you and I sat down to start watching that video right now, mm-hmm. we'd finish in 2023. Mm-hmm. So this is what we're dealing with. And if people who want justice quickly are gonna be wildly disappointed.
1: So Scott, do we have a precedent domestically? I think like, I feel like this is the America's most wanted uh, story from when I was growing up as a kid. But it's like on public access, meaning it hasn't been elevated. There are no press briefings on a regular basis. The president's not holding up a picture and saying this is enemy number one. The head of the FBI is not doing that. Let's just use the bomber as an example. Someone tried to plant pipe bombs at the headquarters of the two parties of the United States right during all of this are they putting against this resources that we can compare it to on anything else? The Boston Massacre bombing, anything like that? Because it feels to me like they're not really putting everything into it, right? And, and most of all, they're not communicating with the American people other than the Twitter feed where they say, hey, do you know this guy? Grainy footage of some guy with a MAGA hat on, right? And those go out and we try to share them. But why are they not holding up whatever they know? They know what sneakers they wore, right? They know the sweatshirt. Why is that not being held up for the American people every day asking for their help?
0: Or, or why not be courting public opinion and seeking higher level charges against those they have caught. Why not go out there and re- reinforce? Here's why we have to hold all these people accountable and pursue prison time for all these people. They're, they're not using the pulpit or the platform for that either. Well, there's a couple reasons. First of all, it's long been precedent for the U.S. Justice Department not to speak publicly about open pending cases. That said, This is an unprecedented event. So maybe it's time to consider breaking with precedent Um, that notwithstanding the law enforcement agency that began this investigation at the heart of the investigation. The U.S. Capitol Police, one of the few, if not the only police force in America that really isn't subject to any transparency. They don't have to tell you anything. They don't have to issue police reports. They don't have a review board that meets publicly They're 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 not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. Unlike your local police department, U.S. Capitol Police doesn't have to answer publicly to pretty much anybody. So there's this culture of secrecy or opacity that's transcended in January 6th and has been from the start. That being said, I'll tell you, this vacuum that exists of information from the federal government about January 6th, the pipe bombs, charge cases, the investigation, the safety of the Capitol, there are some in media who are trying to fill that vacuum. I think I'm one of them. And I can tell you, people are just starving for information about it. Um, the engagements I get are, by orders of magnitude, wildly higher than the most engagement thing I've ever reported on a non-January 6th story. Because people are craving information and they're just not getting it. So the people that those of us who are trying to put this puzzle together or keep updated on the largest criminal investigation in U.S. history,
1: we have a lot of people coming to see what we know. Hmm. Well, I'm, I think you're, what you're doing is a tremendous public service. Um, it's vital, but it's also unique. Like, you know, I go to you because you're on the beat, you're in the courtrooms or you're around it and you know, what's happening. And, you know, there's, there's a nationwide manhunt happening on a daily basis. People are getting their doors knocked on, but it's not being reported. And I, and I kind of compare it to the war on terrorism in in the early days, right? We knew there were, there was, it seemed like a new, top leader of al-Qaeda was killed every week, right? The Defense Department would say, okay, we got the latest top leader of al-Qaeda. Here's that person's name. Here's how we got them. There were regular reports about a a national security priority, right? How are we doing against a threat or an enemy? And the the Pentagon has said, the the president said, I think they're right in saying that domestic security, uh, domestic terrorism is the number one national security threat. So- is it only the FBI here? Where is the breakdown in that transparency? Like I know there are political forces at play here, but why and, and I understand why maybe Biden doesn't want to do this, but why isn't the, the the head of the FBI, why isn't the head of the police force engaging with the public on this and the ones that they're already doing? It's just a matter of like they're posting it on Twitter already right? So it's not like they're not releasing the information. Why aren't they amplifying it beyond that? Is it that they're checking a box? Is it that there aren't enough resources? What answer do they give you when you ask, why does Jen Psaki not tell us every day how we're doing on this and who's still at large?
0: I don't pretend to know the politics of this, but this that may be an indication of what the politics are the people studying the politics that they're trying to make a decision that um, doesn't cause political trouble. But Put all that aside, because that's a, way outside my area of expertise. What I can tell you is what the FBI is doing, what the U.S. Capitol Police are doing, what the U.S. Justice Department is doing is customary. This is how they roll with open cases. They don't get out there. They don't get out there and bang a drum. They don't get out there and reinforce the importance of a case. They don't. They, they, it's just their practice. Is that the right practice in this singular historic American moment? I don't know, but I'm not sure anybody's being well served by there being a culture of silence on something that viscerally and transcendently impacted Americans, horrified Americans. I mean, I'll I'll just tell you, my then seven-year-old was with me in the base of my house January 6th. I was covering January 6th from home because of COVID. I was covering the electoral college certification from home. And then I started seeing the images everybody started seeing on TV. And my son saw in my eyes the fear, the horror of the person at the Senate president's desk. That first image of somebody was in the Senate chamber we're at the Senate president's desk, and I, I, something came across my eyes because my little guy went running out of the room crying because he'd never seen daddy scared before. So let's put that in context. Americans have that reaction to January 6th. They remain starving for information and hungry for justice. And they're just not getting information. They're not getting updates. They're not getting the cathartic, here's where things stand, here's where we're going. Everything's going to be all right. And Mm. I think that's a problem. That said, what the FBI is doing, what Capitol Police are doing, what Justice Department officials are doing is customary in the criminal justice system. Mm.
1: And I'm glad you're putting that that humanity around it, because I I remember similarly being at home covering all of this and saying to my wife, they breached the Capitol. They're Mm -hmm. inside. And as a national security person, I know what that means. OK, they got inside and that was huge. It was a huge breach of, of security. But the, the, the way things have followed since has been um, has been lacking, in my view, in that urgency. So I think about our kids. I think about the message we're sending. And I, I think about the fact that there is not outside of you a cacophony of media folks that are covering this. It feels like it's not news. There aren't even perp walks. Right, like on the big ones. Like usually, you'd see a perp walk. Right, the guy's in handcuffs. He's being pulled out of his house. He's being walked inside. If a if a white girl goes missing, it's national news. You know, for for weeks, and we're all following every single clue. But here, that is missing. And and part of what's also missing is is what's happening inside you've been covering that very well let me ask you to to describe we had matt zeller talk about conditions inside resettlement camps but i feel like we don't know what's happening to these people inside jails or prisons or wherever they are can you paint that picture for us because you've been you've been illuminating it and talking about the organizing that's going on inside and around that paint the picture for us of the folks that are being held where are they what's their life like and what's the story there
0: less than 10% of the defendants are in jail pending trial. There are again, 650 or so defendants. By my reporting, there are 45 in the Washington DC jail pre-trial. Now the Washington DC jail for nearly 50 years, even by jail standards has been considered to put it charitably subpar and a really tough place to serve time. Um, We know speaking with some of the defendants, who've been in that jail and their attorneys, the January Six defendants are kept in the same wing of the jail. They call it the J6 wing informally among the, the correctional officers. The inmates call it the Patriot wing. They have a morning or evening singing of the national anthem. They're all together. They're segregated from the rest of the unit. I think there's, there's an argument to be made. It's for everyone's safety. There's an argument to be made that it's a special treatment of them and they don't deserve that. That's that's an argument for a different day. Um, the D.C. Jail warden and the D.C. Jail director have been found in contempt of court by a federal judge for their handling of court orders for overseeing the medical care of the January 6th defendants, at least one of them. And that jail has a track record of having subpar medical care complaints. That jail has a track record of having problems with its physical plant, its heating and air conditioning systems. It's leaking from the roof. Um, it's not a good place. Um, All that being said, there are two units in the Washington, D.C. jail. There's the older, even more rickety central detention facility, and there's the relatively newer and more desirable central treatment facility. The January 6th defendants are in the newer, more desirable central treatment facility. The central detention facility is where people who get arrested in and around D.C. have to serve their time. And just this week, the um, U.S. Marshals Service announced it was going to evacuate 400 defendants from the central detention facility, that older facility, because of subpar conditions and move them elsewhere. That's how bad things are at the jail. But to put it all in context, less than 10% of the people arrested for the U.S. Capitol insurrection are actually in jail pending trial. But those are there, Paul. They've been there a while. (laughs) They've been there 10 months. That's, That's time that they'll get credit for if sentenced to prison time down the road. But People who want to exact a pound of flesh have gotten a little bit of a pound of flesh from those 45 in pretrial detention.
1: And would you project, Scott, that when do we start to see them go to trial? When, what, what, what does that timeline look like for those 45 as a starting point? Or do they, do they go through the people who have been released with lower charges first? How is that uh, order of March going to go over the next couple of months?
0: Well, you would think everyone would prioritize the pretrial detained defendants to go to trial first. I mean, they're in jail they should go to the front of the line. I mean, and that's 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 a natural instinct and a natural rhythm of the justice system. They're going to have to prioritize the defendants who are in pretrial custody to go to trial first because they haven't been convicted of anything, they haven't pleaded guilty to anything. But charitably, I think it would be at the end of winter. Um, you know, they think post Super Bowl. Think post Valentine's Day, and it's honestly in some of these cases, it's both parties agreeing to the delays because the defense lawyers haven't gotten haven't corralled all the evidence they want to have at their fingertips. The defense attorneys may not want to go first (laughs) to trial um, and be the um, the canary in the coal mine of what's to come uh, in front of a DC jury. So I think we're a ways off. Uh, But so what what are we getting now? We're getting closure of the lower level cases, the misdemeanors. Defendants pleading guilty. Some actually already being sentenced. And that in itself, if you put separate that from the rest of the cases, that's a talker. I mean, how the Justice Department is disposing of these low level cases has got people ticked
1: off. Yeah. Um, can we pause there? Because that's what I want to go deeper on that. And, and last week you quoted the judge who had some pretty stern words um, on on how this is going. But at least for me, there's a feeling like uh like some folks are getting off easy, like some folks are getting to go, you know, to work out or go to Mexico on vacation. There are these cases. Right. Can, can you paint that picture for us here? I mean, are they getting off easy or is this what happens and we don't normally see it when someone has a judge uh, Sorry, has a lawyer and the lawyer pleads? Hey, my client needs to go on vacation or go to my son's football game. Can you paint the picture of what some of those pleas have been like and I don't know if you have a sense what percentage have been granted and how that compares to you know the average D.C. person who got arrested and is in that jail right now.
0: So two different threads you're pulling on here. Let's separate them. First of all, let's talk about the people who are getting permission to do things before their cases go to trial. And some of them seem like pretty provocative requests. I want to go to Mexico for my regular vacation this year. I want to go to the beach with my kids. I want to go to the October tenth, Pittsburgh Steeler, Denver Broncos NFL game in, it, at, at at Pittsburgh. I'm a big Steeler fan, and judges, which was tend- an
1: actual request, which was yes. an actual request, yeah,
0: it was an actual request that was honored. The judge said okay. yes, and, and that shouldn't be a surprise. I'm told by legal experts, including a former federal prosecutor, who says judges just tend not to exact penalties before somebody's convicted of something, before somebody pleads guilty. If the court system deemed this person safe. And worthy of release from jail pretrial, there shouldn't be a next level limitation on their travel if properly reported and properly notified ahead of a guilty plea or of a conviction. And there's a strong argument to be made that their requests being been honored so far are trips and travel that have been supervised. They notified you in advance and told you when they're going, where they're going to stay, what their hotel is, when they're coming home, how to reach them. So they're still being supervised on pretrial release. That's happening. Most of the requests I've seen made have been honored, and those are likely and largely the lower level cases where somebody is not charged with conspiracy or chemical spraying police or being there with tactical gear. The second thread is one that's going to be relevant for months to come. That's the sentencing for defendants who do plead guilty. What kind of leniency are they being shown? That is a meaty topic. Because that's what's going first. And then that's somewhat logical that the first set of cases you close out are the ones that where defendants aren't accused of hurting anybody, assaulting anyone, breaking anything, didn't come in there with, you know, an earpiece and a you know a shield and, and tactical helmets. And those are defendants who were only inside for a few minutes, pleaded guilty early. They were quick to plead guilty. Federal government usually honors that. And they say they're sorry which is not insignificant. So we've watched.
1: Are they flipping of- too, Scott? Are they flipping up and and talk, giving them more information about a broader conspiracy and what they know? Is that a key part of that?
0: Yes and no. I mean, these defendants acknowledge they've made what they call a proffer. They've met with the feds and told them what they know. I'm not sure what they have to offer because these are not the defendants accused of conspiracy plotting or planning. They may have told the FBI everything they know and they offer to tell them more. If there's more, that's relevant. They may not have a whole lot, which is why their cases are being disposed of quickly. If you've got somebody who's got a lot of information, they're not going to sentencing anytime soon. The feds will squeeze every drop of intel out of that person and give them credit for it before they go to sentencing. So before I go into the, the misdemeanor guilty pleas, there have been a few guilty pleas in the high-level cases. The accused oath keepers, the accused plotters and planners, those who came to the the Capitol, according to prosecutors, with tactical gear, encrypted communications and a game plan. They were ready for battle. Some of them have pleaded guilty. and We haven't heard boo about their cases since the guilty pleas. And I don't expect to see those people in a courtroom anytime soon because they've flipped. They've agreed to cooperate. And they've got a hell of a lot to offer. These misdemeanor defendants, I think they told what they know. And the prosecutors have deemed them guilty. Um, worthy of going to sentencing. There's not much more we need out of them. And they go to sentencing. They say they're sorry. They say they, they, so many of them, Paul say they were caught up in the moment. It was a, it was a a spur of the moment thing. Judges have really liked that phrase, but it's been somewhat impactful. I've seen jail sentences of 30 days, two weeks, home detention, probation, $500 um, restitution charges, which, you know, $500. Five hundred dollars. This 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 thing has cost us hundreds of millions. So let's talk
1: of about dollars. that as an example, if we can, Scott. So like someone who who got fined five hundred dollars, they were in the Capitol, they they were inside the building and trespassed. And and in my view, like if you would have told me these people did this five years ago, I'd say they'd all be dead. Like I've been in the Capitol so many times. There's no way they would go inside without being shot or detained but they went inside. Let's just talk about people who breached the Capitol, which to me, as someone who spent so much time in DC was unfathomable. I've been on the floor of the house. I've been inside those buildings. I know what those security perimeters are like, but people who went inside, who went through the Capitol, maybe got a $500 fine. They they were a part of a national security threat. And then they were allowed to go to a, a Pittsburgh Steelers game with a huge crowd. That's a big, soft national security target. It seems like Uh, if you can answer that question for me, but also it seems like they're not treating it like a national security threat. If these were Muslim guys 20 years ago, they would be in Guantanamo and it would be a national security threat and they would be treating it that way. But it seems to be inconsistent in the way the prosecutions and the judgments are using whether or not it's actually a national security threat. Does that seem
0: Right? That's the question I get every day. And and I got to tell you, it's it's a relevant question. There are people who view this who view January 6th, I assume an awful lot of people who view January 6th as a binary situation, if you were part of it, you need to go to prison for a long time. If you were any part of this, any part of trying to overthrow democracy, any part of a crowd that had a gallows and a noose was trying to hang Mike Pence and kill Nancy Pelosi and kill unknown others who came so close to doing that, you need to be in prison for a long time, no matter if you were a foot soldier, a pawn, a bishop, a king, or a knight, <laughs> um, you need to be in prison for a long time. Um, there are others who view this with a more of a broad perspective that you didn't do a whole hell of a lot. You clearly weren't part of plotting or planning. You were there and you went with the crowd. And when you got inside, you decided, I'm not going to punch cop. <laughs> I'm not going to steal priceless art off the walls. I'm not going to, I'm sorry, leave feces on the floor of our cap so maybe maybe 30 days in the lockup 500 bucks and a name damaged for google for all time is a sufficient punishment and i'm not mm. trying to say who's right-headed or wrong-headed i just know my inbox my phone are saturated with messages from people who view it as there's two possibilities you were part of this you need to go to prison for a long time or you weren't part of this
1: mm. when, when can you talk about maybe the most uh the most noteworthy cases. I mean, we're talking about the Oath Keepers and, and the conspirators, the planners, which in, in my view are domestic terrorists and need to be treated as such. But can you talk about maybe the most egregious assaults on cops, maybe stories that that people haven't heard. Give us an example of two or two of maybe the most shocking cases that that have been brought forward at this time that we know happened. And maybe they took a plea or they didn't. But give us an example of, 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 of one or two or three of the most egregious cases that you're covering. I'm still
0: struck most, Paul, by police on police crime. I mean, there are a number of people who are charged with January 6th who were at the time active duty police officers or Recently retired police officers, and these include defendants, at least one defendant accused of hand-to-hand combat with a police officer. So that's always going to jump out at me. Um, you talk about the non-physical assaults. How about the verbal assault these police took? Reading through a case file this morning, a defendant who is in pretrial detention, accused of using racial epithets and then calling the police communists and then calling the police and any number of words I wouldn't ever want to say out loud. Um, the police had to take that intake all day and in addition to the intake of chemical spray. And yeah, we've got defendants accused of using chemical spray against police, Bear spray, more potent than that mace or pepper spray you may have sniffed once in your life. Mm-hmm. Using hockey sticks, baseball bats, metal poles, shape, sharpened American flag poles, using makeshift weaponry, against our police officers. It's hard to divorce yourself from that reality when you read through those cases. I I monitor those cases most closely because I I feel like somebody's going to have to detail for me how somebody drove to Washington, D.C. with a gallows and erected it and nobody stopped him. How somebody walked up to the Capitol with a baseball bat and no one stopped him. And I'll tell you something else. I watched those cases and I want to know who funded the travel, the equipment, and the weaponry.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what we would do if it was al-Qaeda. I mean, I, I, you know, the parallel I always challenge people to think about from a national security standpoint is if it was not a domestic group, if it was a foreign group that that got to this point, that achieved arguably, I, I think, a, a significant military objective, they got in, which is, that in and of itself is, is a victory for them and will be for a long time. If this was a foreign entity, We'd we'd be drilling them all down. We'd be questioning the hell out of them. We'd be holding them. We'd be restricting their travel. We'd be following their money. We'd be, you know, extraditing them. I mean, it would be a full court press. But here, that's not what's happening. And let me let me ask you a uh, part of this that that I think is also maybe most egregious, Scott. There's at least one case of a guy who participated in January 6th. Then enlisted in the military, got put on active duty at Fort Bragg, and then they went and got him at Fort Bragg. So he was a part of this, not when he was in the military, but afterward, he made it through the military screening that said, you know, we've talked about extremism on this show. I had Jeremy Butler, who had testified before Congress about it. I've argued there is a significant problem with extremism inside the military and inside the veterans community. We don't know how big it is, but we know it's serious. This is maybe a, a really important example. The military missed this guy. Right. Like he, he was there and then he was on active duty at Fort Bragg and they arrest him there.
0: I, I don't pretend to know how background checks fail in the way you describe them. But I tell you, I watched Jeremy's testimony as well. I watched the Congressional House Veterans Affairs Committee testimony earlier this fall about extremism in the military. And there was an awful lot of sobering realizations there. First of all, let's put this in the big picture. There were dozens. Dozens, if not eventually hundreds of people with military connections, veterans or active duty, who are part of January 6, according to prosecutors. And it's it, it. you wonder if that's by happenstance or if extreme groups are very much targeting military for recruitment because people in the military are influencers in their community. If, you, if, you, if you're an extremist group and you lure a member of the military to join, that, that, that's there's a, there's a force of magnitude there they bring other people with them because they're influencers people want to follow that military man in their community and members of the military you know better than me particularly good at planning strategic work how to work as a team in a combat situation how to equip how to be ready for variables i mean there are people there paul with tourniquets and first aid kits tell me they weren't ready for something yeah um so the, the military's Presence on January sixth is absolutely sobering.
1: So let me let me ask you to take this forward. As you know, in, in predicting, we try to pre- look ahead at what's next, what's to come, what are the other pieces. Um, you're talking about a timeline that rolls into next year. It rolls into the midterms. Is is there a scenario, Scott, where the midterms directly impact this? Where 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 if there's a change in the House? a change in leadership, that that this can be slowed down, that this can be stopped, that this can be diverted? Can you talk about the midterm or anything else that that might be on the horizon that can either accelerate or yeah. impede the progress of this process?
0: I don't know that the House Select January 6th committee survives the midterms, at least not until January 2023. I don't know if that investigative muscle is going to remain. Um, and they're looking at the bigger picture. You know, the Justice Department is trying to investigate crime at the Capitol and the criminals who are part of it. The January 6th committee is trying to figure out what led up to all this, what gave rise to an insurrection, what were the conditions, who were the players that were relevant and helped produce that crime that occurred January 6th. That's, that's an intenuous spot. I, I spoke with a couple members of that committee who said they hope to have their work wrapped up by spring or summer 2022. They may have to. It um, may have to be done by then. Right,
1: right, right, right. Uh, who
0: knows if that thing exists Would the Justice Department's investigation change at all based on political fortunes and midterms? I don't know. How do you think it's gone so far for, for the Democratic Party? Uh, how did election night go this year for Democrats running for office in the context of the largest criminal prosecution in American history playing out in real time? I don't know who benefits or who's hurt politically by insurrection trials by insurrection plea deals or by the ongoing prosecutions, because I'll tell you right now, the party in power has not seen any political benefit um, from holding accountable those who try to under to try to tear down America.
1: Can can I ask you, Scott, to talk about um, maybe the opposite of what you do? Which is what Tucker Carlson is doing and what other, I would argue, bad actors are doing that are trying to paint this as something very different, right? Tucker Carlson now has this series of videos. I don't even want to mention him except that it's dangerous. And I think he is, he is manufacturing uh, and mobilizing a, a degree of focus and energy around that moment as as a rally cry. He's, he's flipping it on its head and saying this was a time where they came after patriotic Americans. They came after people who care about their country. He, he, he posted a video where he par- paired it to the debathification in Iraq after Saddam. So basically saying they came for these people who were patriots and they're coming for you. Can you talk about how that other type of media is influencing these these cases? Is it influencing these cases if they go to a jury? Will they influence the jury? Can you talk about the broader media environment that this is happening in and and how that's that's impacting things?
0: I don't know how it impacts public opinions, but do you know who hates that stuff? The D.C. federal judges. They make it unequivocal when they're speaking at hearings or issuing orders that the ongoing denialism about reality of the election of 2020, the ongoing lies, one judge even got more granular and said, Donald Trump's suggestion he may come back to power soon is reason to hold defendants in jail because it makes them more of an ongoing threat. It's a reason to keep release conditions strict because those defendants are an ongoing threat in the context of the lies and the false information being given about elections and about the insurrection itself. So it's not going to help the currently charged defendants because ultimately they're going to face two people, you know, two groups of people, the judges and D.C. jurors. And we've seen a number of defendants, a growing number, Paul, who've sought to get their cases moved to different jurisdictions. A defendant from Maine wants this case to be heard in Maine. Defense. A defendant from East Texas wants his case to be heard in East Texas. They both. And in all these cases where they're seeking changes of venue, say the D.C. jurors are you know, helplessly liberal and politically poisoned by coverage of January 6th. They've been seeing so much of January 6th that you can't get a fair jury in front of D.C. jurors. Let's see how the Tucker Carlson's um, arguments play in front of D.C. jurors, because as of now, not one judge has agreed to move one case.
1: Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that, that that's really important. Let me ask you another uh, specific question, Scott. I'm going to keep drawing the parallels to after 9-11. So folks went to, you know, people were were uh, detained and sent to Guantanamo, were released. And then the argument was you can't release them because they'd go back on the battlefield, right, and kill Americans. That ended up happening, right? Some people were detained, put in various American prisons, whether they were military or or here in other places in, in black sites. And then eventually were released and were eventually back on the battlefield, blowing up guys like me, right? Has there been any cases of anyone who's been released so far where they've done something else afterward?
0: Yeah, we've seen a number of defendants um, either break with the court's expectations or break the law, break the court's orders. Um, not in the way you just painted the picture. Nobody's gone back to try to stop the Electoral College certification from happening again because it's going to be a while until that process goes through mm-hmm. again. We haven't seen others try to, you know join mobs and run up under the Capitol. I don't think any were arrested for that large and sweeping September 18th rally in Washington, D.C., but we have seen defendants who have been sent back to jail for violating the court's expectations. How about the defendant from Virginia, a former local police officer who was released pre-trial in his case and, according to the prosecutors and the judge, broke the court order by buying 34 guns in one Purchase, and judge says that's we 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 banned you from possessing a firearm. So buying thirty four of them doesn't really follow the spirit of what we've ordered yeah. you to do. So you're back in jail and quickly. We have actually a particularly interesting defendant who's just facing misdemeanor charges, the lowest level charges, likely wouldn't see a day in prison, not many days at a, at a minimum. She's in jail pre-trial because she kept violating the court orders. She kept violating what the judges told her to do, and so they threw her in jail for absolute disgraceful rejection of courts authority um, she's pleaded not i think we'll see what happens in her case but we see defendants try to get right back out there
1: and do what they want to do mm.
0: not what they're required to do pre trial
1: yeah i mean i think there's a scenario that we can envision where trump runs for re-election and he treats these people the same way he's treated war criminals there were cases of 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 military personnel that were Tried and accused and some convicted of war crimes and and held up as heroes and brought out to Trump rallies. There could be very well a case where somebody goes to trial, whether they do time or they don't, and they leave as heroes, as martyrs, as 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 rally points, and they're on the trail with with Trump in three years from now. I mean, I can see that happening. I can see that being a part of this dialogue. Is there a is there a ringleader? Is there a hero? Is, we, know, we know Ashley Babbitt was the woman shot inside the Capitol. One, She's been held up as a martyr. She's dead. Is there anyone who's alive? Who's one to watch? Who's the Maktada al-Sadr of this group that is rising up and that we need to watch for in years to come who might run for Congress or, or something else down the line?
0: Well, I mean, Ashley Babbitt is the one. I think you nailed it there. But I, I would also watch the legal defense funds some of these defendants put up and how fast they become flush with money. Um, you know, put up a GoFundMe for a January 6th defendant. see how many people, you know, cut checks. Um, there are those who've had a media profile, who've cut a media profile and they get a lot of requests. Um, for, they get a lot, they get a lot of calls. For example, how about the guy who put his feet on Nancy Pelosi's office desk and took her mail, according to prosecutors and, um, left a vulgar note behind, according to prosecutors. Had a pretty full dance card. A lot of people have put him on television. I'll admit to being one of them because he has things to say. And I felt it was important for the public to hear some of what he had to say about his case, what he thought was going to happen, what he thought about the conditions in the Washington, D.C. jail. Um, he's getting platforms. Uh, I think those platforms should be um, cautious about what they give him a platform to talk about. Um, but these defendants are cutting a profile in their communities. Um, and I, I wouldn't Be surprised if many were the most famous person in town now, if many like that they're Googleable as being part of the Capitol riot. And I, I would think for some number of people, this is a reinforcing their beliefs, giving them credibility with a certain number of people, a certain type of people. And it's a cause celebrity.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's some congressional districts where this will get you elected. This will get you elected in some you know, congressional districts in America, and I can see that coming. I mean, there's a day in the future where an insurrectionist is serving in Congress next to Ruben Gallego who served, who was on this show, who was in the Capitol, who's a former Marine. I can see that happening. I mean, that may not be probable, but it's possible the way this is unfolding right now and the kind of upside down world that this has has become. Um, Scott, I'm going to ask you if you can stick around for our Patreon members for a couple of rapid fire questions that are going to be much less serious than this. I want to ask you about your first car and your favorite drink and what you're doing when you're not working all the time on this really important work. But let me ask you a, a, a final question here, if I can. What's next? What are people not seeing? You're great at, at elevating the story, ringing the alarm, and, and telling people watch this. What do you think is is the next big story or stories that people need to know about?
0: Watch three groups of cases very closely, and I try to dedicate part of my day to each day to the cases of the accused Oath Keepers, the accused Proud Boys, and the accused Three Percenters. To me, that's the heart of the action. That's where the, there's going to be a next level, if there's going to be a transcendent moment or flip or switch coming from one of those three cases. Those are three groups of accused far-right groups, all of whom are accused of something particularly either violent or next level on January 6th, many of whom are accused of long-term plotting and planning as early as November 4th, being ready to do something uniquely disruptive on January 6th. We've seen five of the accused Oath Keepers, I believe at least five, plead guilty already and agree to flip. There are nearly two dozen in that case. There are dozens total among those groups. That's where you want to focus. And, And we haven't seen any of them go to sentencing. All those cases are live and they're vibrant. And I try to keep that in context. When I look at 650 cases, you got to dedicate some of your bandwidth every day to those cases.
1: I want to just ask you one follow-up on that, Scott. So we're we're tracking now on members of the active duty, uh, people who are police. Is there any indication that those core groups will flip and result in an in an indictment or 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 an accusation involving a member of Congress or the administration? Do we have any insight I, in, into that?
0: I get that question a lot. And I always I give I give two responses. First of all, I think we've read every one of the tens of thousands of pages of court filings. We haven't even seen a benign reference to a member of Congress being at all involved. You know, even a nameless member of Congress is just nothing that's been said. And if they have those cards, they probably wouldn't show them right now. Right. So it doesn't preclude it from happening. It just hasn't happened in, in what we've read. But the Oath Keepers watch that case because they were at the time and to a degree still the top line defendants, the, 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 the big fish. And they're flipping. Who are they flipping on? What are they giving up? You don't usually see the top line defendants go first in yeah. flipping. And I and I, I don't want to ask too provocative a question because I don't know the answer, but it's interesting, and I would keep watching it.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the one to watch. Did someone? you know give them an advanced recon did someone share security information whether it was intentionally or or accidentally right a member of congress says oh here's where there's only one cop on the back door and here there's always five or just giving them access if if i were going to conduct an assault i'd want to get intel i'd want to get intel sources i'd want to work i'd look for weak spots and that's what i'm watching for maybe of course they're not going to show their cards at this point but i think there is a possibility that down the line they go for that big shot and and it's someone that they're holding out on. And that's when things, if the timing works out, that's going to happen in the midterms. It's going to happen around the midterms. It's going to happen as Trump maybe declares that he's running again. And this is going to go on for years, right? Maybe even decades. I don't know how long. Is there a precedent for how long? This can go. When does it end, Scott? Does it end?
0: The fed, those of us who cover the federal courts, we we are some patient people, man. It <laughs> is it is a slow system in the best of times, and this this is this is unprecedented times. This courthouse and the people who work there, they have a certain amount of spectrum, and they're not used to having 650 cases come in at once. They're used to having two to 300 cases a year. They have 650 of just this singular crime at once. So it's it's just sluggish as i get out plus there's so much at stake this is a multi-year thing we're in. But that even with that aside Paul, January 6th is a story that's bigger than that day. It's not just about the prosecutions. It's about how it changed our politics. It changed our view of of government, how it changed our view of security, how it changed America and how it's still doing all those things. This is the story of our lifetimes. And it's not, it didn't end January 7th. Mm -hmm. And when these cases come and these cases close, we're still a changed country. And that's why I'm so fixated on it because this is the story of our lifetimes. This is September 12th and 2001 to a degree because we are changed and and everybody involved is still here. And it's, you get the point. This is a way this transformed America and we have to stay diligent about following it.
1: I agree. And, you know, maybe one of the only good parts of this is that now we have your reporting and you have risen to this moment in a way that I believe is truly patriotic and a tremendous public service and really represents the best of what American journalism is all about. Um, I know it's been a hard time for journalists in America in the last couple of years. We've covered that on this story. But I think what you do um, takes tremendous courage. Um, you have great integrity. And we say on the show all the time, stay vigilant. And, and you are embodying that every day. So I thank you for your work. We're going to track it closely and try to elevate it as often as we can. And I hope uh, you can come back again. And until then, more than anybody else, I ask you, please stay vigilant, Scott. Of course. All right, Scott is the real deal. Follow him on Twitter right now and follow him daily. It's at McFarland News on Twitter. Watch his reports on NBC and share his work. Spread the word. Help us hold those accountable who tried to overthrow our government and help us find the ones that are still at large. Scott's leading the way and he's a true helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Scott's helping us all stay vigilant. And so is another project that we're working on here at Righteous Media. While the rest of us die, the latest TV project from me and Righteous Media continues to roll on Vice TV. And as I've told you before, I've rejoined Anthony LaPay, Ephraim Films, and super narrator Jeffrey Wright from Westworld and James Bond for season two of While the Rest of Us Die on Vice TV. In episode one, we talked about the money, all about the money, and we looked into the secret history of how greed was eating the American dream. That was episode one. And last week, episode two, we looked into the secret history of the American diet, how sugar Ultra processing and all that nasty stuff is making us sick just in time for Halloween. And this week, we've got another new episode for you on Vice TV. We're digging in to the urgent threats all around us, from wildfires in California to the lights going out in Texas. We've all seen and felt the fear of what can happen when the infrastructure and the systems fail us. America already has totally broken and destroyed infrastructure. People in Texas were just
0: gobsmacked. The lights went out for days and days. Chaos is profitable. As soon as I started driving north, it was just total and utter devastation.
1: That's what happens after 20 years of refusing to invest in infrastructure. It means we're not ready for climate chaos. While the rest of us die. Yep it's another fun one. Tune into episode three this Thursday, November 3rd, 10 p.m. on Vice. Vice TV is on all the major satellite and cable providers. And this episode, like all the others, will be up a few days later for free at vicetv.com. Check it out. Me, Righteous Media, and the whole crew is proud to support it and spread the word. And while you're online, be sure to check us out on social media and check out independentamericans.us. You can see video of this conversation I had with Scott. You can check out all our recent episodes, including a lot of our old episodes with other great journalists, like ABC's Martha Raditz, Marine Corps veteran James Laporta, Bianca Oladriga, Errol Lewis from New York One, the great Harry Smith back in episode 36, and Bob Woodruff from Veterans Day two years ago. They're all at independentamericans.us. You can also get the very sharp Independent Americans gear. You can start now shopping for the holidays. That's all at independentamericans.us. You can also check out all the videos on the Righteous Media YouTube channel. When you're over on social media, checking out Independent Americans, checking out me, check out Guess the Guest every Wednesday. Every Wednesday, I challenge you to guess the guest. And this week, some people got it. They guessed Scott McFarlane. I had this shady picture of him up there with the governor of Virginia, and I teased it and wanted to see who got it. And Shannon The vaxxed and masked, got it. At J.O.D. Foster, got it. She's a wife, a dog mom, and a firefighter. And she got it. She correctly guessed Scott McFarlane. And she wasn't the only one. Because, shit, of course, Delfino Sanchez got it again. This guy needs a job as an investigative reporter with Scott McFarlane. I don't know how he does it, but every week he gets it. He said, hey, Paul, this was a very hard photo clue. I almost threw in the towel. However, your most important story of the year detail kept me digging. Could it be Scott McFarlane? Delfino, got it again. Delfino, you are perhaps the most vigilant supporter of this show. And you blow me away, man. Thanks for watching. Thanks for playing Guest to Guest. If you want to support the fight like Delfino Sanchez, check us out on Patreon. I want to thank all of our Patreon supporters who are our most dedicated You're going to get extra content with Scott. If you stick around over on Patreon, he's a pretty fun guy. I'm going to give you extra video and audio where he answers a lot of the greatest questions we ask on this show. He's going to talk about the first car he's ever had. It's an interesting one. And he talks about what he likes to drink. He talks about what he likes to watch on television. He's a very interesting guy. And that's only for Patreon members. You can join that Patreon community if you're not already a part of it. It's just five bucks. You get access to events, exclusive content like my extended conversation with Scott, merch discounts, and more. Find us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com and look for Independent Americans. And if you love this show, please support us and go to the Apple Podcast Store and give us five stars. I know most of you haven't done it, If you haven't done it, just go over there and do it. Please give us a solid and be sure to subscribe for free and share. If you're listening now and you haven't subscribed, the best thing you can do for us and for this show is just to hit subscribe and share. And of course, I want to share the love with the Righteous Media team, creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz, precise Paula Hernandez. They continue to make this content possible. And of course, I want to thank my wife and my two amazing boys, They rolled with the punches over this COVID situation and still pulled off Halloween, which was awesome. We did the family version of Winnie the Pooh. You can see it on social media. But my wife was Winnie. The baby was Piglet. Ryder was Tigger. And I, yes, was Eeyore. And their grandmother stepped up and dressed up like Kanga. But Halloween was awesome. And now it's over. That means Christmas is coming. Believe it or not, Christmas and the holidays are coming. So I want to thank my family in advance for making it special for Rolling with the Punches and helping me make this show possible. Be sure to check out everything we do at Righteous Media, including Everybody and Their Mother Has a Podcast, another great show from Righteous Media, and The Firefighters with Rob Sarah. New episodes of Everybody Hits every Wednesday, my show hits on Thursday, and Rob's is coming every Friday. They're all picking up steam, and they're all 100% free. They're all different. Spread the word and join the growing Righteous Media family. Anywhere you get your pods or go to Righteous.us. We saw it in the election this week. America is still more divided than ever. But we at Independent Americans and Righteous Media are trying to change that. We're adding light to contrast the heat of all the other media networks. Every episode of Everything We Do brings the Righteous Media five eyes. Independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And unlike Andrew Yang and Joe Manchin, we are truly independent. And if you're among that 40% of Americans that are truly independent, this is your show. If you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're also welcome here, too. This can be your show. And if you're a concerned American who cares about the future of your country, this is your show, and Righteous Media is your place. All are welcome. We invite you to join us and be a part of the solution. Please keep sharing the hope, because hope is the oxygen of democracy. It's the hope we feel at the start of every NBA season, every football season, every baseball season, every spring And often in the early days of every election. Until it gets shattered. But elections do offer hope. And another election day is gone. And a reminder. That means that election day gone. Next week is Veterans Day. And here's a reminder. That combining Veterans Day with election day. Would finally make election day a national holiday. And it would be the ultimate way to improve both, to improve Veterans Day and Election Day and salute our veterans, to truly salute our veterans. Think about it. I've proposed it on this show before. For most people, Veterans Day doesn't mean much more than a day off of work, but it's a federal holiday. But despite that, attendance at Veterans Day events and parades are low and declining. And so is the veterans population. Over the next generation, the population of veterans in America will go from 21 million people to 10 million. The sad reality is that most veterans understand the overall meaning and importance of Veterans Day is falling. And simultaneously, America is still struggling to pull people out to the polls to vote. Compared to most progressive democracies in the world, American turnout is terribly low. Yeah, some of it's apathy. But some of it's just logistics. For many working people, especially those people working more than one job, they can't take away time from work to vote. And that also includes millions of veterans. So there's a bold and basic solution I've talked about before. Combine Election Day and Veterans Day. The ultimate way to truly support our vets and honor all those that died in combat is to vote. There's nothing more patriotic, nothing more respectful, nothing more American. America's veterans have lost our limbs, we've lost our friends, we've lost parts of our future, we've given everything. And now, we're willing to donate our national holiday to improve and strengthen our democracy and the future of our nation. An overwhelming majority of veterans support this idea. And I believe that once most civilians are aware of it, they will too. It's a no-brainer double benefit. Veterans Day would mean more, and so would Election Day. And it would add a serious injection of true patriotism, a sense of shared sacrifice, a dose of leadership, and a huge helping of hope. And we need that hope, that oxygen of democracy. And there's reason to be hopeful still. Even after all the shit of the last couple of years, America can still pull off some amazing things. Like developing a vaccine in less than two years that can be in the arms of almost all Americans And the entire world. And this week, finally, our kids. America can do big things. If we're focused. If we're well led. If we're unified. If we're hopeful. And if we're independent. So we got to keep this movement of independent Americans growing week by week by week. And we will stay vigilant. Because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And know you're not alone in your vigilance. We're all vigilant. We're all in this together. From Glenn Youngin to Joe Manchin, from the Atlanta Braves to Black Sheep, to Scott McFarlane, to all those brave kids stepping up right now to get the vaccine. To you. All across this country, we're all in this together. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant, America. Powered by Righteous Media.